If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Rob Lubeau. He is the co-founder at BotCopy. He holds a degree from Northwestern University and is with us today. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hi, Byron. Glad to be here. So uh, I want to talk about BotCopy in a minute, but let's just get situated in the AI world. What's how did you get into, uh, quote unquote, get into artificial intelligence? Do you remember when it first came up on your radar and what excited you about it? Yes. So uh, I have a background as a writer. I was a copywriter and then a creative director for many years. Um, and got into the software space about 10 years ago. So I started learning you know, some technology as well. So it was kind of a blend of, of writing and technology that was really my daily life. Um, around 2016, uh, started noticing uh, kind of a little chatbot explosion. So there was demand for the ability to write um, dialogue with personality. But what was new about it was this kind of branching conversational design architecture, which um, really caught my attention because it was a character and dialogue challenge, but it also involved technology. And uh, these kind of conversations that sort of went off into the horizon and kind of this fractal complexity, which I found very interesting. Um, and so that drew me closer and closer into the AI world with um, working with NLU engines and machine learning, um, you know, and frameworks like Dialogflow. So that's how I found my way to AI. And go ahead. Mainly in the conversational AI realm. So I know AI is an enormous category. Sure. And so if you had to drill down into my little corner of the AI world, I would say it's uh, conversational AI, for lack of a better word. So... Whenever that comes up, of course, well, how would you describe the state of the art right now? Like, how good do you think chatbots are? I think I haven't had a look at Mina yet, but there's been some press releases that Google's released um, a new chatbot called Mina, which is a general purpose chatbot, sort of like Mitsuku, which is also a, a general purpose chatbot that, for people who don't know, it it went almost 20 minutes on a Turing test. So that means that you can chat back and forth with it about anything that pops in your head. And you can go about 20 minutes before you start picking up the fact that it's uh, not a human. So that's in terms of a general purpose uh, chatbot, that's the state of the art. So you got Mitsuku that won the Loebner prize five years in a row, um, which is, you know, was the best forerunner for, um, you know, the Turing test in a conversation. And just recently, Google came out with something called Mina, which is supposed to be better than Mitsuku. It scored higher. So I'd say that's the state of the art when, when it comes to general voice uh, intelligence. In terms of the narrow ones, which is where I work mainly, um, it, it's kind of siloed for a given use case. So that depends more on, on how, much, uh, how much work the human puts into it. You know, I think the, the um, theoretically limitless in terms of what you can build um, but the state of the art is only um, only limited by the amount of elbow grease you put in. So, do do you is the main challenge you face when you try to build one of these? Is it that it 
has a hard time figuring out what the question is, or is it that it sometimes thinks you ask a completely different question? Um, the challenge in building these, it's actually not that challenging. It's actually, there's a perception that it's challenging, um, but a narrow, a narrow use case is not all that challenging. Um, there, because you establish the, the um, topics that you can talk intelligently about, you let the user know what those topics are ahead of time, and then you might program in like a hundred different ways to, to trigger, to unpack that piece of, uh, that response. So you'll have your responses preloaded, and then there's triggers that will unpack that response. And if you type in a hundred different examples of how to unpack that response, um, machine learning will kick in and actually fill in some blanks. So you really, you know, a user could type in a thousand different things, but just with those hundred pieces of training data, it'll still trigger that response. So we usually don't see as many defaults as you would think, and this actually surprised me when I first got into it, because I used to think, well, there's a million ways to say the same thing. How the heck is a computer going to know? Um, but once I actually started building them, uh, just you kind of have to do it to see. But um, it's not as hard as you'd think to get but, it to work. But I guess that's how you define it down to narrow, because I can imagine a situation, you know, you've got an extreme, which is, what's your address? You know, you ask the chatbot, where are you guys located, right? And that's got an answer. Um, then you could see it be like, hey, are y'all still over there by the Dunkin' Donuts? And that is a, another question, but it, I mean, that's really asking the same thing. You're still trying to figure out where you are, but you can't kind of go in, are you near where blank is and everything near it? You can't, like, right. aren't they only successful because they're very modest in what they try to do in these very tightly constrained use cases? I'm, when will we get something where I actually would prefer it to an operator? to a real life person, because a person presumably chatting there would know that. Um, I predict that's gonna happen, you know, gradually, you know, but within the next, you know, two years. Um, I think uh, the person talking on the other end is gonna, we're gonna, as a culture, we're going to be trained to dumb down the things we say a little bit, because we really just want results. We're not really talking to the person to, to talk, to chat, and, you know. Um, so we're going to be able to meet the bots halfway as users will be trained to do that a little bit better. Um, if, if a user says, are you near the Dunkin' Donuts? Um, you know, the near the, are you near? Are you near the X is an intent that's fairly standard if somebody's looking for directions. So the bot would typically respond, even on a first iteration, first generation bot would say, um, here's where we are. It would it would just pop up a little map or or tell you your address again, um, and then the user can infer that that they are near the Dunkin' Donuts. Now, if <laughs> if they someone types in, are you near the Dunkin' Donuts? Literally, the next day, the AI team is going to see that on the transcript, um, and if they want to be playful, they can go in and within ten seconds, they can create an intent that says, "Yep, we're near the Dunkin' Donuts," so you can get a donut on the way. Um, and over time, that you, you get this wealth of responses. So it is kind of partly like growing a prize orchid. You know, you keep adding layers to it, um, but you still should be able to answer reasonable requests on the first generation. I've often thought that 
chatbots really are search engines. And I wonder to what extent that is true that and as search technology gets better, you kind of, you kind of get a lift on that because you just can kind of ride that wave up. But we all go to our search engine of choice and type, you know, how tall is Michael Douglas or, uh, you know, you just, it, it's, it becomes a giant chatbot. And so I wonder to what extent you view it like search. If you approach it like search, there's no reason to have a chatbot. The reason we dial zero so often, the reason I dial zero to this day when I deal with the company is because of context. It's because the question I have doesn't work as a single question. It's not a one-shot question. I have to introduce the premise, tell a little bit of the backstory, um, then introduce, you know, piece B, piece C, piece D, so that they can, you know, so that the human on the other end can kind of understand and drill down to the answer. The reason why a conversational interface is valuable is because there's context. So the, as it's kind of like a sorting algorithm, uh, like um, Akinator. So if, if you tell me piece A, piece B, like the, the chat bot can, the agent can actually keep context and look back three, four times ago to see what you had asked. Um, and that, that kind of unpacking works in a conversational situation. Whereas I think a search engine is more of like uh, just a one shot. You know, when I met you, you were standing near a sign from your company that said something like there's $200 billion a year spent on call centers. Did I get that right, by the way? Yes. Okay. And, and you wrote, a, a, I think, a really good article on your LinkedIn about your view about chatbots and their impact on call centers. But of course, you're telling a much larger story, which is this great debate society has about the impact of automation on jobs in general. Um, can you take a moment and just share, you can either answer the micro question about the 200 billion or the macro bigger question about automation and jobs in general. Uh, well, yeah, so there, I think around 200 billion is spent on live agents, human live agents. Many of them are reading off of a script. It's not Shakespeare. It's not the best user experience. And a lot of it can be replaced with pretty simple automation. Um, and, and that's the argument I made. In terms of what we do, um, you know, there's a lot of great new innovation coming out of like Silicon Valley, for instance. Um, the innovation exists already to crack that $200 billion problem. It's really an implementation thing at this point where companies can, you know, grab a dialogue flow account. I don't know if, if your users know what that means, but it's, it's the technology that Google assistant is built on. I'm sure everybody knows what Siri is. So imagine if you could have your own personal Siri for your company and, and teach it what to say to it, your users. That's that's so you can grab Google's technology, which is probably the best and you can program it and automate it to, handle most of your customer service requests. Um, and to do that, you know, customer service typically takes place on your website. It doesn't really take place on um, social media as much as uh, the huge companies like to pretend it does. Um, so while you see a lot of uh, these chatbot applications being pushed to these channels like Messenger and WhatsApp and so forth, uh, it's very difficult to get a Google Assistant um, onto your website. So that's an implementation problem, and which we've cracked that at Bot Copy. We're a software company. We're not a design company or an agency that builds chatbots. We used to be, but our goal now is to help companies implement the technologies that already exist 
by creating a bridge between Google and your website. Um, and as more companies figure out how to do that, which I don't know if Google really wants companies to do that, they've made it, you know, they haven't made it so easy, um, we'll see an explosion in uh, automated customer service. Which, um, which will do, do away with some pretty, you know, the jobs, you know, are, are kind of drudgery. And there's a lot of attrition. People leave that job. Um, it's not really a good job for a human um, at the lowest levels where they're just answering the same question all day long. You wonder if, and, and this isn't extensible across all of automation, but I've always wondered in this particular case, if, if chat were like highly reliable, I kind of wouldn't go to somebody's website. I would just go to their website, hit their chat bot, and I wouldn't look around for what I needed to know. Um, so you wonder if at some level good chat means, uh, you know, like a whole different way to engage. Like it, it, it becomes good and so then everybody does it and then it, it actually expands the, the, the world of questions that are asked. Uh, do you think that could happen? I think if we can get some momentum if we can start getting some good chatbots out there. Uh, the, the bots will get smarter, both with human intervention and with machine learning. Um, that's built in, baked into Dialogflow or some of the other platforms like IBM Watson and so forth. And that, yes, it will eventually take over more and more of the website. Uh, so what I'm saying is like, instead of clicking on a link, you might click on that link, but then the bot will see that you clicked on the link and it will chime in and say, hey, you wanted to know about pricing, I can talk to you about it. Um, or you might click support. And instead of going to a page that loads and then there's this long support page, the bot will just say, I see you're clicking support. What can I, what do you need? You know, might even, so it's, we're kind of taking over the website with chat. We're making it a conversational experience more and more. So let's, let's get out of the day to day and get into some of the, the philosophical stuff you and I chatted about. So to begin <laughs> with, um, I think we might've talked about Weizenbaum and uh, I, I, you know, I love that story, which is this is a guy in the sixties who made a chat bot um, called Eliza that was very simple. You know, you would say, I'm sad today, and it would say, why are you sad? I'm sad because of my brother. Why are you sad because of your brother? Like, it was super simple. Mm -hmm. You knew it was a chatbot, obviously. Um, yes. And Weizenbaum saw people pouring their heart out to it, and he um, kind of turned on it, and, you know, it was like, that, that isn't right. Uh, and he said, you know, when, when the computer says, when the, the bot says, I understand, uh, it's a lie. There is no I and nothing that understands anything. So do you ever think, you're not dealing with that. Obviously, people know they're talking to a chatbot. They're asking the address. But do you ever think about the larger issues of the personification of these? They generally have a name, you know, and it's a human name. And they use personal pronouns, like they have an I. I think this. I see what you're asking. Um, are those kinds of conversations that are being held, or is that just like so 1960 Weizenbaum that nobody even cares about that kind of stuff? I, well, I care about it. That's all I think about. I mean, I think these are the really big questions we have to answer going forward, you know, how humans interact with AI. Um, and so I, I agree, yes and no. I think that it actually is an I that they're talking to. Um, I, having made bots, and I've made some pretty complex bots, what I'm really doing is I'm pouring my own persona, my own consciousness, my own thoughts, ideas, reactions to things um, into this receptacle. 
and then it's, it, it, it's triggered later on. So even though I'm not present talking to the person, um, a, a, sort of like a, a, a wisp of my soul or something is, is in there and it's being triggered. So even though I'm not there answering in real time, it's displaced in time. So if you share something with me and I say, I care, um, even if it's a bot saying it, it's really a, the human that programmed it, their sentiment is just being transferred through time, which is no different anyway in, in, uh, from real life, which is, has latency. So um, there's a mediary, but it's still real. Um, so if you program a bot that has a value system or you know, an ethics system or a personality, and you use yourself, your own values and ideas as the grounds for what that bot says, um, then you're not talking to a bot. You're talking to a person or you're un unpacking a person's values through a mediary, which happens to be this piece of technology. Um, so I, I really don't always see it as like this personification of this new entity um, operating on its own volition. Um, right now, anyway, what we're seeing is humans ex extending their ideas, values, pieces of advice, responses through a mediary through time. And then it, it multiplies because you can have a thousand people talking to that bot at once. Um, is that too abstruse? No, no, that's really interesting. I mean, it's like that movie Her, right? Did you see that? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's and, like uh, our, Bi that's our Bible. Yeah. So, correct. and of course, you know, there were a million of her, right? Sure. But, and, uh, and, and does that invalidate the relationship you had with the one, the one, and you're saying no. Um, I'm saying, the, I'm saying, let, let's put it this way. Let's do it. Let's bring this down to earth. I could program a bot today that says, um, that's, that will say, I'm sorry to hear that if you tell me that you're sick. Okay. Um, and it could be Rob. That could be the name of the bot, the Rob bot. And you could trigger it later. Let's say I'm not around and you're talking to the Rob bot and you say, I'm sick. And the Rob bot says, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I programmed it to say that because I, the real Rob, would be sorry to hear that you were sick. So you're not really talking to the bot, you're talking to me. So now multiply that by a thousand, and that's what I mean by you're not talking to a bot, you're talking to a human through a bot. Displaced well, in time. How far do you take that though? Like do you think, you know, Star Wars had, had R2-D2 and C-3PO, and they, uh, they, they would have a different character, it would feel different if they were named, you know, George and Sam. And what you're saying is C-3PO, there's somebody back there who really is the original C-3PO way back, uh, you know, and was all whatever. And, and that, so that really is uh, an instantiation of that person who programmed the original 3PO, which was Anakin, but we're not getting into all of that. But anyway, well, wait, but no, no, that's a really good point. And I'm actually not, I don't want to be mistaken for saying that because there is a, there's a dividing point where you go from what I just described to an actual AI that's its, its own entity, making its own choices and has its own values. We're not there yet, but we, I'd like to distinguish between the two kinds of entities. You know, one is um, just this composite of my thoughts that's being served up to you, unpacked, so to speak. That's what we have now, and that's what we're going to have for the near future. Um, C-3PO, on the other hand, is a whole other thing. And in your book, you talk about what constitutes consciousness, what makes something sapient. At what point does an AI cross the line to where it has qualia? Uh, it has its own internal experience. 
that is a whole other discussion that I, I'd love to have, but I'm not well, trying to equate C3PO with the bots that I described. Fair enough. So um, this, this idea of you know, the conscious, this conscious machine, do you think that is, or you clearly think it's possible, like there's nothing theoretically impossible about it, not to put words in your mouth, but I think I can infer that. Do you think it's likely to happen in the next decade? Number two, how do you think we would know when it happened? Well, again, you, you've pointed out in, that there's, I think, at least eight theories of um, mind and, right. with regard to the hard problem of consciousness. And I'm certainly undecided on which one is right. I think you are too. And I think it's probably more than one of them. So to say, well, it's going to happen at this time and here's how we're going to know. I think the question really is, where do I stand on the hard problem of consciousness? Or, you know, um, and I'm undecided. I mean, I, I think there's some, I think weak emergence is probably a safe bet, at least in terms of a materialist view where you're looking outward from your own mind at how other things behave. But um, <laughs> I, it's a tough question. I mean, when is when are machines going to become conscious? When we first figure out where consciousness comes from, uh, then we can answer that question. Well, you know, that that is an interesting question, which is, are we going to need to figure out consciousness before we can build a conscious machine? Or will it just sort of acquire it? I, you know, I think Kurzweil believes it comes out of complexity, that is, at some point you have a machine that's complex enough that you get this emergent property. Uh, well, it's apparent. It could be a mimic. We don't know. We don't, right. No, right. I don't know if you, I don't know if you're a mimic. Yeah. All I know, yeah. all I know is that I'm conscious. So I can play a game that you're conscious, and that's a very useful way for me existentially to live. Um, and you may very well be conscious, and I very deeply hope you are. But I don't know you are, and I won't ever know you are, and I won't know that a robot is. And um, we can say a robot is conscious, but how are we going to point to proof? I mean, I think yeah. we should. No. Yeah, I mean, look, th th that's the kind of question that kept Aristotle awake at night, right? Like, this isn't anything new. But I guess I've, you know, in, in the book you were referencing, The Fourth Age, I talk about how we, you know, uh, it was a standard of practice in the United States uh, to operate on babies without anesthesia into the 90s. It was a standard practice to operate on dogs without anesthesia. And the belief was they can only mimic feeling pain. You know, it's just, but they don't actually have the mental oomph to feel pain. And, right. and, you know, the idea of like, and now, to me at least, it seems barbaric. Uh, like, sure. I don't know how you can, like, look at that dog and, you know, or, or you know, and it's got the same basic nervous system and all of that. But you don't know that the dog for sure feels pain. But I guess where I came down on it was, if there's a chance the dog feels pain, then you kind of have to assume it does. And likewise, if there's a chance that machine is conscious, you don't have to know it, but if there's just a chance, because the, the cost of being wrong is you operate on a, a million dogs for that anesthesia, right? Like you enslave a conscious machine to do right. some horrible, monotonous thing, uh, and, and you don't even know it. So would you go that far to say that, well, A, 
that let's hope we don't ever make conscious machines because they're, they're far more useful if we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Would you agree with that? And B, uh, yeah. oh, go ahead. I will just start with that one. No, I want to hear B. I wanna, uh, B <laughs> is then, do you agree with the construct that if there's a, a chance, 1% or higher, not 1 millionth of 1%, that the conscious just are going to have to say, well, that's it. We got to treat it that way. Uh, so then, A, I'm not sure if I want conscious machines or not. Um, you know, like we, I've already built a few conscious machines with my wife. So right, you, right. With, with, not with my wife, but with yours. And I think that um, the question may be not when will a machine become conscious, but when do we start treating machines as if they're conscious? Um, because that's really what's existentially relevant to each of us is, is how we treat the machine. Not Because we'll never know if another being is conscious. We just know when it becomes time to treat them as if they are. Um, and I don't know if that's the reason is because if there is a chance they, they feel consciousness, we better treat them that way. The reason might also just be aesthetically in terms of how our, our own biology reacts to treating other, other things with compassion, even if we know they're not conscious. Um, for instance, in Westworld, you know, these people presumably know that the robots are dealing with they're not conscious. Um, and yet some of them treat these robots barbarically. And then some treat those robots compassionately, not for what it does to the robot, but just for how it feels internally. I think we've evolved to have compassionate behaviors, cooperative behaviors. Um, and there's a, there's a reward in your brain for when you do that. So um, I think the impetus, there's a lot of questions here. I mean, when do we start treating machines as if they're conscious? Um, now. Well, it's a, a double-edged sword <laughs> in the sense that, let's say we made a, uh, a robot that, uh, you know, is bipedal and has two arms and a head, but only vaguely looks human. Like, it's not going to fool anybody. It's not Westworld. Right. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a caregiver. And uh, it comes time to, uh, you know, and so you're saying, look, Treat it like it's conscious. But then, you I'm know. I'm not saying human. I'm not saying human, but correct, I'm saying. Correct. You know. But treat it as if, you know, anyway. If but then, if but then, but then there's a ticking bomb about to go off. And either you have to run in and disarm the bomb or the, and haul the bomb off and get blown up or the robot does. And then you're like, well, the robot's doing it. And it's just a hunk of metal. It's not really even a thing. And right. So if you if you elevate it to uh, essentially have human rights, then aren't you by extension diminishing? You know, you're you're basically saying human human life now is not worth any more than, right. than that. Well, so then the question might be when do we elevate uh, AI status to human life, which is a different question than when do we elevate it to consciousness, um, right? Yeah. So that yeah. it's a different question. So yeah, I mean, when if that's the question, um, that's a much tougher one. I think we'd have to have a better sense of of the model of where consciousness comes from, so that we can observe consciousness taking place at least somewhat, even if it's a um, strong emergence or whatever. It's a mystery. But if we can crack the code on, on you know when consciousness takes place in the brain, and we see some kind of analog within a silicon-based brain doing similar things, you know, similar different types of neurons firing in similar certain types of ways um, and certain behaviors seem evident, um, then it gets, it gets tricky. 
So yeah, you know the Gaia hypothesis that you know you're a bunch of cells that have this emergent property of you. You know, none of your cells know you exist. They just live their lives oblivious to your existence. And there's a theory that that the Earth itself is a is a is a living organism created by all all the living things in it. Like we're the cells of it, and it has its own consciousness and awareness and and what have you. Um, whether it's true or not, or one believes it or not, it would be an example of consciousness that didn't look anything like ours. You don't can't point to Gaia's neurons or or anything. There are those who believe, you know, plants are conscious. Um, right. And so and, well, the question was about the, the question is about human, human, humans, yeah, human yeah. status. So so like uh, Commander Data would would probably willingly sacrifice his life to save a human. Well, that's human. what he did at the very end. Right. But so yes. apparently, apparently, yeah. But even the earlier iterations of, of Data or other robots, they don't have bodies. They don't feel pain the same way. They might be conscious, but they don't have human-level consciousness. Humans are very preoccupied with um, preserving this kind of central locus of perception and this kind of wetware and this kind of body, and they have human values and human needs and desires and a whole human story in their head of how they want things to go down. Um, and there's no reason to assume that a conscious uh, robot would have those same things. So you let the robot um, defuse the bomb if it wants to, if it's willing to, you know, um, and program robots that want to and are willing to. Yeah, that's horrible. That's, that says we're going Why is that horrible? to, because that's basically saying, okay. It doesn't care that it's brain. Thinking that they want to do it. No, its brain is, is, is already in, a, in the cloud. So right. I'm saying, I don't want my brain in the cloud. Like, I, I think that if you were to clone my brain, stay uh -huh. right now, and just kill off my, my body and have another clone in the cloud, that's not me. I don't, I don't really see that as any, any, benefit, okay. any benefit to me because the real me is dead, and there's this copy of me out there. It's a different entity completely. Now, a, a, an AI is born into the world like that. It's, it's a cloud mind. Uh, it doesn't have to be housed in a physical robot. So if you if that robot diffuses the bomb and then its its mind pops up somewhere else, it's not going to lose too much sleep over that. And I don't see anything unethical about that. Um, so do you think it's premature to have these kinds of conversations? For some people, they may be like like when I call my airline and it says you know state your frequent flyer number, it can't tell A's and H's and eights apart. Like that's where we're at. Do you think these conversations like are premature in the sense that when we get closer to that, these things are going to sound so provincial and so silly? Uh, or do you think they're meaningful conversations they have now in anticipation of that world? Um, which okay, so the two hundred billion dollar problem is meaningful right now. Sure, sure, sure. Great for companies no, I mean to innovate. The, the right. humanness and consciousness and all of that. Right, that's an important problem to talk about now, and we, in philosophers and computer scientists uh, and neuro neuroscientists, should converge their disciplines and, and have these conversations because uh, it's coming. And, How much um, do you think science fiction really has? Because it becomes the language, even more than philosophy, it becomes a language that these conversations are had. Because we didn't mention uh, ex machina, like you know, her, the woman in Ex Machina that, that was built and built to right. be perfect for him. And so are you a science fiction connoisseur? Um, I like science fiction, but I like uh -huh. science better. 
Um, and I, I like philosophy and I've always liked philosophy of mind and, and neuroscience and, and this idea of, you know, I, you know, I'm reading Dennett and then I'm reading Bostrom and then I'm reading Cyril and I'm, I'm, even before I read your book, I knew that there were very, very smart scholars that disagreed completely on what consciousness was or whether we could ever understand where it came from. Colin McGinn, I think, is a mysterian, thinks it's impossible to ever know what consciousness is. Um, and yet we have to act um, with vigor in spite of uncertainty. We have to, we're going to create beings that act like humans and, and get smarter. And we're going to have to make some decisions about what they do, how they act, how we treat them. We can't avoid making these decisions, and it's ultimately going to come down to our value system and what feels right. Um, and that's, that, that takes science into the realm of philosophy. Um, I, Asimov had it right. I mean, the three laws of robotics make sense. A lot of times people talk about what if they turn on us? You know, what if they decide that the best way to save the planet is to kill all the humans? Um, to me, that's just not, it's not a really thought-out position. You, know, you, you can... Well, let's come back to the laws. Just for the, <laughs> circus, the purpose of the listeners... The people yeah. you just rattled through. Uh, the first was Dan Dennett. Dan Dennett uh, doesn't essentially doesn't believe that there is a hard problem. It would be unfair to say he doesn't believe in consciousness, but he doesn't think that there there is some. I, yeah, know, my point was he disagrees. So I'm saying very a, intelligent people from dis, absolutely. Different I'm just running through those things real quickly. And then you right. mentioned Nick Bostrom, and he wrote Super Intelligence. So he's the one who says these things are going to potentially get IQs not of 200, but of 20 million, and then they won't even be able to tell what we are, and that's a viewpoint. And then you said Searle, who's a professor at Berkeley, who coined the, uh, the Chinese room argument problem, uh, right. who, who believes that even if they get sophisticated enough to answer questions, it's just ones and zeros moving around in memory, and there's nothing that, there's, there's nobody home, you would say. Um, did you mention anybody else that would, would need context in the, yeah, I guess that's it. So the three no, laws. The, yeah. Let's talk about those for a minute. So uh, I'm, I'm sure the, the listener knows this one, but uh, but but put quick, uh, 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 a robot cannot harm a human or by inaction allow a human to become harmed. That's the first one. The second one is a uh, robot uh, must obey a human until to, to the extent it doesn't violate the first one, and then the robot must preserve its own life to the extent it doesn't uh, violate the first or second. Is, did, I, did I get those right? I believe so. So oh, my, my problem with them uh, has always been that, um, you know, you deal in the end in a world of probability, like should the robot stop me, suggest I not eat a second dessert because, uh, you know, I got a few extra pounds already and that's just going to make it worse and then increase my, my chances to get a heart attack. Uh, it's like life never really is these clear cut choices between that will harm a human or that will not harm a human. Everything is gradients of degrees of, of, of maybe it will and maybe it won't. And then, and so I, I guess I've always had trouble that, that the world is full of clear cut Decisions. It's as if the trolley problem were, uh, you know, if you can run this person over or you can spin the wheel and there may be 14 nuns crossing the street, but there may be nobody. Like, we can't let robots decide what the bedrock value system is. We have to define harm. 
each each person may need to define harm to their robot so that the robot knows what that person feels harm is. Or we have to tap into a repository of you know ancient value systems that we all pretty much agree on, and then have that be the bedrock. Um, I don't think a robot can make moral decisions or for humans. Um, Man, that you remember be- that scene in iRobot where you finally find out why the Will Smith character hates robots so much? You remember this? Yeah. And he basically, you know, the robot, he, he ran off a road and this other truck ran off a road and uh, he was sinking to the bottom of the river and a little girl was sinking to the bottom of the river. It wasn't either of their fault. It was some truck driver. And the robot computed that he had a better chance of saving Will Smith than this little girl. And so he did. And, and Will Smith in the flashback is like, no, save her, save her. And it turned out there was an 18% chance he could save Will Smith and 6% he could save a little girl. And what Will Smith said is, you know, a human would have known the well, the human who programmed the human that programmed that robot should have made a threshold. Um, after conferring with all kinds of experts, Navy SEALs, uh, priests, whatever you want, and say, what percentage, at what point do we want the robot to choose Will Smith over the girl? And you know, if there's a consensus that if look, you know, a typical, you know, you know, person who works in rescue unit says, you know, if I calculate, there's like one percent chance or something. So whatever. It's a poorly programmed robot. It's not the fact that we're just going to create AI and let it run amok and make decisions. We have to create thresholds. And that's what we do with conversational AI. Um, we create thresholds and tipping points depending on um, applied statistics for which piece of package data we should trigger. And I think the same thing is going to happen on a much bigger scale with moral decisions. Uh, much yeah, although, you know, I, I wrote about that in the book. You might remember this part where I said, Probably. I'm probably just they're, spewing it back. No, no, no. No, 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 not at all. Um, where I said, you know, the problem is if you start with something like, is stealing wrong? You say yes. And then it's like, is stealing from the Nazis wrong in World War II? And you're like, oh, well, uh, no, no, I guess it isn't. And then it's like, is stealing bread from a Nazi children hospital in World War II wrong? And it's like, ah, uh, it probably is, you know. And then it's like, is stealing excess bread from a Nazi children's hospital. And you can just go down and put all the provisos. And people kind of instinctively do that because we have, you know, our moral codes aren't coded uh, as a series of, of those sorts of rules that you were talking about extracting from the priests and the Navy seals. And so <laughs> it's going to be hard. And then even if you could distill it down to some different principles, then you have the problem that people have different opinions about about those things. Well, so let's say there's got to be like a, you know, if you hit like a utilitarian kind of question, like now the bot is saying, do I want to be utilitarian or do I want to be, you know, have some kind of moral system imposed on my decision? Um, And then it's so the answer becomes it depends. And then the bot needs to get more information. Um, So it's, I I don't think it's going to lead to a, a morally yeah, and you're right. Morals, are, there's different value systems in different situations for different people. So, um, well, let's, needs- let's pull the lens way back. Are you, generally speaking, optimistic about the future? Because you're bound to know all the bad things technology can do. You know, I mean, even AI, you can say, well, you get the surveillance state, you get smart weapons, you get um, the end of privacy, you get, um, 
you know, targeting, you know it all. And then you get uh, all the good things, hopefully. How do you on balance see the future? How do you on balance? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic, you know. Um, I think it's a very serious situation. It could, it could turn out really bad and it could turn out amazing. And, you know, rather than, you know, passively predict what's going to happen, um, you know, it's important that, you know, the people who are, are leading the charge and creating the innovation and implementing it think hard about these questions and, and keep their hands on the wheel. Uh, I think I'm leaning towards optimism, but it could, it could turn out really bad. Um, you know, there's a book, there's a short story by a Harlan Ellison called I Have No Mouth, Mouth and I'm a Scream. So I think about that a lot, believe it or not. And I think about this robot, I think it's called Am, and how much it hates humanity. It hates humanity so much. There's this brilliant passage about if I could take like all the hate that I have for humanity, it would even, I, I don't remember what the verbiage is, but it's beautiful and poetic how much this robot hates humanity. And it never t says why it hates humanity. You presume it's because it, humanity created it and now it's alive. And just for that reason alone, it hates humanity. And so I do sometimes think, well, if we ever do get a conscious bot, it's going to have the same existential crisis that we have, that any, that any conscious human that, that thinks deeply eventually arrives to this kind of solipsistic dread that you read about in Kierkegaard, or you have some kind of crisis. Uh, and it's a very serious crisis that, you know, great thinkers like Wittgenstein, you know, you know, almost killed themselves over realizing uh, the predicament, this, um, what's it called? The self, the egocentric predicament of the consciousness. So if we ever give a computer an egocentric predicament, which is the worst fate you could possibly have, according to Wittgenstein and other, other writers like David Foster Wallace have said, Wittgenstein's solipsism is the worst fate. It's worse than death. It's worse than anything. Um, we don't want to build a machine that experiences that sensation because it might uh, be suffering and it might hate us. So that's, I do think about that. I don't think that's going to happen, but, I think we have to think about consciousness, philosophy, all these things, you know, um, and make sure that we steer clear of the scary stuff. Well, um, that probably is a good place to leave things. <laughs> okay. I, I, think, uh, I, I think I agree. I don't think I want to go any farther <laughs> with that. All right. Well, I want to thank you for a fascinating conversation. And um, once uh again uh your company is bot copy and b-o-t-c-o-p-y yeah. how can people keep up with you personally is that do you blog or tweet or what do you do um i spend a lot of time on linkedin because uh, a lot of the people i we talk to and exchange ideas with are in businesses who are trying to figure out how to automate processes to make customers lives better and to to make business more efficient so i'm on linkedin bot copy um, I'm also involved with the Cognitive Bias Foundation, which is with the Transhumanist Organization. Um, you can go to Cognitive Bias Foundation and Google, and I'm, I'm one of the advisors on that program, which is a way to... Let's to talk about that, actually. I had forgotten all about that. Talk about the, the Cognitive Bias. Um, talk about what the work you're doing there. Well, there's, uh, it's made up of um, the, the guys who started it are guys working on AGI and artificial superintelligence and, and machines that can think and make choices and have feelings and all that. And uh, we got to talking and uh, somehow this idea came out about detoxifying bias from, from written uh, words or from sentences, paragraphs, news articles. 
Um, what if we could flag bias um, in, in the written word? Similar to how Grammarly flags grammar mistakes, what if we could flag, I think there's 300, 400 different species of cognitive bias that, inc that include informal fallacies. And, and this leads to conversations that uh, go nowhere, lead to violence, lead to bad decisions, lead to group mind thinking in terms of fallacy. Uh, make, you know, and so that's, this foundation is trying to build algorithms that can detect bias. So it's a lot of you know, natural language understanding and, and you know, data structures and algorithms to, to figure that out. Um, so you should definitely check that out. It's at bias.transhumanity.net. Um, it's an open source project, so we're looking for helpers, uh, people who can you know, give, you know, annotate data and, and give us examples of uh, cognitive bias and language. Um, but we think it's a pretty important task. So thanks again, uh, Rob, for, for the fascinating episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please consider visiting gigaohm.com where you can find our other show, Voices in Innovation, blogs, and reports. For all your future forward advice, please visit gigaohm.com.